Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. episode is brought to you by Lily Ponds and Lavender Beds. Tonight, we'll read another Australian fairy tale called The Fairy City, written by Hume Cook and published in 1925. You can certainly pick up straight away on this episode. However, if you'd like to listen to the first chapter of Australian Fairy Tales, please find The Magic Well which aired on October 19th, 2022. James Newton Haxton Hume Cook, the author, was an Australian politician who served in Parliament for almost a decade. This story features aspects of urban planning and civil engineering, a professional engineering discipline that deals with the design, construction, and maintenance of the physical and naturally built environment, including public works such as roads, bridges, canals, dams, airports, and more. It is considered the second oldest engineering discipline after military engineering, and it is defined to distinguish non-military engineering from military engineering. get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, 
take a few deep breaths. Where the magic well was found, peace and comfort now abound. For a city, nobly planned, builded by a fairy band, rears itself above the hill, where a garden, formed with skill, graces every court and street, every path of pleasure sweet, down to where a water ring, lake of careful fashioning, spreads its silver circling band round about a fairyland. In the first story, you were told how Prince Warata, traveling in search of a wife, found, by accident, the magic well. You were also told how the finding of the well so inspired him that he resolved to build a city round about it, and, with this object in view, set out with a great company of fairies, fully equipped to march across Australia to where the well is situated. As you will remember, they had nearly reached their destination when they were attacked by the desert fairies, but... With the timely aid of the shower fairies, the enemy was successfully routed, and the tale concluded by telling how, rested and refreshed, they all set out upon their final march, singing as they went. When, in the early afternoon, they arrived at the site of the magic well, a halt was called, and for a little time, Everybody rested. Then, taking a company of working fairies to the top of the hill, the prince directed them to remove the grass tussocks he and his friends had planted to hide the opening to the well from sight and to dig down until they were told to stop. These instructions they faithfully carried out, the prince, meantime, watching their work with the utmost interest. When, as he judged, they had got into within a few inches of the flat brown stones which formed the trapdoor entrance to the well, he ordered them to retire and, calling to those friends who on the previous occasion had seen it opened, he placed them in charge, pending further orders. He then instructed one of his officers to parade the entire company close to the well upon its eastern side. This done, Standing upon some of the freshly thrown out earth, he told them that in a few minutes they should witness a most engaging sight. In clear cut language, he followed this statement with a brief narrative 
of the finding of the well. Its fascinating history as related to him by his father, and an outline of his intentions with regard to the building of the fairy city. In this project, he added, he expected to receive their willing cooperation and assistance, an expectation which his confidence in them led him to believe would be fully realized. As might have been expected, the speech was received with vociferous applause, which applause almost reached a roar when, at a wave of his hand, amidst the greatest curiosity and excitement, his trusty officers within the well opened the door and a great stream of clear, cool, crystal water shot fountain-like into the air. If they had dared, they would at once have broken from their ranks and rushed pell-mell to the side of the well to see from whence the water came. But, too thoroughly trained to break discipline, they waited the command to dismiss. Before dismissing them, however, the prince ordered the cooks and kitchen assistants to retire and prepare an extra special open-air supper. This, he said, was not only to indicate his pleasure at the fact that at last they had arrived at the scene of their future operations, but, in token of his admiration of the way in which they had borne themselves throughout the trials and terrors of their long and arduous march. They were then released from duty, and whilst the meal was preparing, occupied the time in a most minute examination of the well and its surroundings. Just as supper was about to be served, and when everyone was in place, the prince rose and said, Before partaking of the dainty viands now before us, I wish you all, on this historic and maybe sacred occasion, to rise and drink with me in the waters of the magic well. All success and enduring prosperity to the greatest enterprise ever initiated in Austral Fairyland, the building of the fairy city. Immediately all stood up, and with cheers that almost reached the sky, quaffed a fairy flagon of clearest water to the prince's toast. A fairy flagon, you should know, is made up of gum leaves put into molds, points up, and pressed into the shape required. To hold the leaves together and to make the flagon retain its shape, a kind of cement is used, made from an extract of 
of black ant's milk and beeswax. It is very binding, and in addition, takes on a most beautiful polish, through which the gum leaves shine as clearly as do fruits or flowers that are preserved in ice. Now, the waters of the well have a very singular and happy effect upon all who drink of them, for, though the prince had not said a word about it, they contain certain life-giving properties which bring to those who drink them the most enchanting results. It is because of these peculiar properties that the well is a magic well. Its waters work wonders in a way that cannot be seen. Thus, shortly after drinking of them, the fairies found themselves greatly stimulated and exhilarated in spirits. But their prime quality lies in their power to rejuvenate those who partake of them. That is to say, they have the effect of making one young again, and strong, and active, no matter how tired or worn out one may have been beforehand. But to resume, after supper, and a very fine one it was, too, as usual, they sang their crooning lullaby songs until all except the sentry guards fell off in sleep. Next morning, their strength renewed, rejuvenated, in fact, just as the golden lances of the sun came piercing through the fast-dispersing clouds of night, they woke, ready and eager for any kind of work there might be to do. And certainly, there was no shortage of employment. As soon as breakfast was over, the surveyors looked out their instruments and made ready to determine the limits and proportions of the intended city and grounds. Very clever fellows are the surveyors, and yet all their skill is based upon a thorough grasp of a few simple facts. They know that just as the alphabet is called the ABC, because in those letters are contained every line and curve that is necessary to the formation of any of the other 23 letters. So, within the circle, the square, and the triangle, all to be found every line and curve and every degree of measurement that can possibly be used in the laying out or building of anything in the world, from the pyramids to a modern battleship. Using the magic well as a center from which to start, they first ran a line two miles due east and a second one, two miles due west. Returning, they did the like thing two miles north, 
and two miles south. Then, just as a boy uses a piece of string tied to a stick stuck in the ground to draw a big ring in which to play marbles, so they, by means of a large number of pegs, made a circle exactly 12 miles in circumference, right round the base of the hill. In this way, there was enclosed an area of ground that was precisely four miles across, no matter from what part of the outer edge the start was made. As soon as the ring was clearly marked, a small army of fairies were put to work all along its outer edge, digging out a trench twelve feet wide and four feet deep. Later on, this trench was made fifty-two feet wide and twelve feet deep. As the earth was taken out, it was speedily removed by another army of fairy workmen and deposited on different parts of the hill pointed out by the prince's engineers to be used later on in the making of lakelets, lily pools, waterfalls, and all manner of delightful arbors, rose gardens, lavender beds, pansy plots, daffodil rings, and a thousand and one other altogether beautiful things meant for glorious display. In the meantime, certain specially qualified engineers, who really belonged to the cave fairies, and therefore fully understood underground tunneling and mining, having been persuaded by Prince Warata to join his forces, were industriously directing the sinking of four great pits close beside the magic well. Each of these pits was situated directly under one of the lines running north, south, east, and west. When they were sunken 13 feet, sloping tunnels were begun, which tunnels, following exactly beneath the lines drawn on top, ultimately found an opening into the great trench on the rim of the circle two miles away. But, of course, None of this work went on without interruption. It was only a matter of a very few days when the desert fairies, impelled by curiosity, came to see what was going on. The great trench, which, as you will have surmised, was being digged to form a circular lake, first attracted their attention and very much it puzzled them. What it all meant they could not understand, but, true to their instincts, 
they soon made up their minds to try and destroy it. This they sought to accomplish by blowing immense quantities of loose sand into the evacuation, thereby making it necessary to do the work all over again. Now, it has to be remembered that when the trap door of the magic well was opened, the water shot upwards into the air. To permit of the basin being placed in position, and for other reasons, the door had been closed and the water shut off. To make it fall into the basin when it should be again released, a kind of standpipe surmounted by a concave shield, something the shape of a reaping hook, was so erected as to be behind and over the water as it would rise. The shield, like the basin, was made of waxed bamboo leaves. In due course, everything being ready, the trap door was again opened and, just as expected, the rising column of water struck the shield and, running along its concave curve, poured downwards into the basin. For a little time, the water seemed to leave the basin faster than it was received, but that was not really the case, for the engineer had calculated the matter to such a nicety that not until the basin was almost brimming and the weight of the water helped did it empty as quickly as it was filled. And what a sight it was when the squares sent out their spraying, sparkling streams of water. No wonder the desert fairies drew back in startled amazement. Rain they knew, a traveling water spout they had seen and marveled at. But here was something past all comprehension. A hundred thousand never stopping jets of water shooting straight at them and more weird and awe-inspiring than anything they had ever heard or seen before giving out the strangest music and the most brilliant colors as the wind and sun played in and out among them. In due time, all city projects were all finished and ready to be put in use. Prince Warita thereupon declared a general holiday in order that all might take part in the first and most important event connected with their venture, namely, the turning on of the water that was to transform the trench into the lake and, in so doing, convert what had hitherto been a hill in the desert into Fairy Island. 
They were, therefore, asked to assemble round about the fountain, which, up to that day, had been screened from view. What time those engaged upon its erection carried out their task. Now, exposed to all beholders, they saw that it consisted of three parts. First, there was the great black polished marble base, several feet in depth. Upon this base, there rested a projecting white marble basin in the shape of an enormous water lily, whilst the fountain itself, made of greenish-colored bronze rising from the center, was so fashioned as to represent a glorious bunch of warata blooms, from the middle of which, a good deal taller than the rest, a very prince of waratas appeared. When the fountain was in action, from every tiniest petal of these mimic blossoms was meant to shoot a delicate spray of clearest water, whilst the lofty central flower would send a shaft sheer into the sunlight. And so cleverly was everything adjusted and arranged that not a drop of water was wasted. It all fell into the basin, and by means of neatly hidden overflow pipes ran into the pits beneath, and so through the tunnels into the lake. All this, however, is anticipating the event. At twelve o'clock precisely, in accordance with the prince's orders, the levers of the machinery, out of sight beneath the basin, were swiftly reversed. Instantly the fountain began to play. From the bunched blossoms burst a misty spray, soft, cool, and altogether delightful, especially when a number of gaily colored rainbow tints peaked and pranced and reveled through and through it. In addition, high into the air from the central flower shot a silver shaft of water that, breaking as it fell, seemed to tremble into unnumbered strings and sprays of diamonds, tourmalines, topazes, and opals, as the sun's rays glanced and gleamed amid the glistening drops. The spectacle was both charming and delightful, and the fairies cheered and cheered again at the varying effects. Then, suddenly, as often happens in a crowd, they broke into bands, some to go this way and some that. Naturally enough, by far the greatest number of bands made for the trench, for, of course, everybody was anxious to see what was there taking place. Almost before they arrived, however, the water came running through the tunnels, and, as they stood watching, 
steadily began to make its way from edge to edge. Of course, it took many and many a day to fill, but with a never-stopping supply of water pouring into it from north, east, west, and south, fill it did, and has remained so filled ever since. Now, the creation of this great lake round about the land chosen for the fairy city and its gardens and grounds not only acted as a bar to certain enemies, but so vast a quantity of cool, fresh water had a miraculous effect upon the atmosphere. It became more humid, more moist. Trees and shrubs that could not have lived there before, no matter how much water might have been given them, now flourished amazingly. Flowers, fruits, and other edibles of all kinds grew to perfection with astonishing rapidity. Birds of every sort and description, attracted in some mysterious way to the lake and hill, came in hundreds and settled there permanently. Bees, beetles, butterflies, and moths, in like manner, came, as it were, out of space to find a new and possibly a happier home than they had ever known before. Now, to see the city at its best, it must be viewed at night, when the artistic lighting arrangements show it up in all its glory. Here, at regular intervals apart, stand very finely made copper lamp pillars. They have all been treated to what is called oxidation, with the result that they have an elusive sheen or polish about them that is very attractive to the eye. To further enrich them and make them still more beautiful to behold, they are inlaid with burnished silver in pretty trailing designs borrowed from some of Australia's best-known plants of a creeping or climbing habit. Among the number may be seen the purple sarsaparilla, the white forest queen, and Sturt's desert pea. On the head of each pillar is placed an exact model or copy of the Southern Cross, from whose five stars there pours a flood of light from night till morning. When all the lamps and all the streets are thus sending forth their rays, the combined effect is positively glorious. The city seems, as it were, clothed in light, soft and delicate, and yet so clear as to bring to richer beauty everything it touches. Houses and gardens, 
clearly seen are yet dreamlike in their loveliness. Trees and fountains, lily ponds and lavender beds, waterfalls, grottos, gorges, valleys, all are magically and mysteriously still and wonderfully beautiful. Viewed in this way, it is indeed a fairy city and a fit and proper setting for the crowning jewel of all its architectural and other wonders, the prince's palace. But of that palace and of all its marvels, time does not permit to tell. That is a story which must be reserved for another occasion. Suffice it to say that when it was at last finished and furnished, many there who thought that it was time the prince renewed his search for a wife. For here indeed was a palace fit for any princess on earth.